Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week, we are, you know, both happy that we're doing this podcast and also sad to say that we have come to the end of The Labors of Hercules. Bittersweet, indeed. As many of you know, we already actually did the very last episode quite some time ago, The Capture of Cerberus. So we're doing the two stories that go right before that, which are what, Kemper? The Flock of Jerrion and the Apples of Hesperides. Shall we begin with The Flock of Jerrion, Catherine? Yes, we shall. Tell us a little bit about it. All right. Well, this short story was first published in the U.S. in This Week in May of 1940 under the title Weird Monster. Interesting. It's like the prequel to Weird Science. I know. (laughs) Uh, Then it was published in The Strand in August of the same year, 1940, in the U.K., And then, of course, it was published in the Labors of Hercules collection, first in the U.S. by Dodd Mead in 1947, and later that same year, also 1947, by Collins Crime Club. Before we get into our usual breakdown, I am going to tell us a little story. This is the last episode in which I'm able to pull out my Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths. That is um, not bittersweet. That's just a plain old tragedy. We all like your uh, myth story hour. (laughs) The Flock of Jerrion actually is one of the longer tales in this collection. Uh, You will all be thrilled to hear. Settle in. And uh, Mm. here we go. Settled. (laughs) For his 10th labor, Heracles was sent to an island far out in the ocean to bring back a huge herd of red cows. They belonged to Jerrion, a monster with three bodies on one pair of legs. Heracles walked off with a powerful stride and soon reached the end of all land in the west. The only boat he could spot was the golden vessel of Helios, the sun. Heracles aimed his mighty bow at the sun and threatened to shoot him from the sky if he did not lend it to him. Helios did not dare to refuse, and he let Heracles take his golden boat. Before he sailed off, Heracles pulled up two huge crags and set them down, one on each side of the strait that separates Europe from Africa. There they stand to this day, called the Pillars of Hercules. When Heracles was out at sea and the waves rose high around him, he aimed a poisoned arrow at the waves, threatening to shoot them if they did not still at once. The waves flattened in fear, and Heracles sailed on to Jerrion's island. He began at once to load the herd of red cows, and Jerrion's watchman and his two-headed dog rushed at him. 
With one swing of his mighty club, Heracles did away with them both. Then Jerrion himself came running to attack him, his three huge bodies swaying on his thin legs. Calmly, Heracles lifted his bow, took careful aim, and sent a poisoned arrow through all of the monster's three bodies. As time was getting short, Heracles rode back as fast as he could with the herd. When he arrived at the mainland, Hera sent a swarm of gadflies to sting the cows, and they scattered all over Europe. Still, Heracles managed to round them up and bring them to the gates of Mycenae just before the year was up. There, Eurystheus sacrificed the cows to Hera, and, gratified, the goddess whispered into his ear that he must demand two more labors from Heracles, for his charioteer had helped him to singe the heads of the hydra, and not he but the waters of two rivers had washed the Aegean stables clean. Heracles scowled, but he bowed his head in submission, for he had won much glory on his ten labors and hoped to win some more. And the eleventh labor in this collection actually is the Apples of Hesperides, so to be continued later in this episode. It's going to seem a little bit confusing about how that relates to the story, but like I have some ideas, but... Before we do that, let's uh, just get into it, shall we? Because the victims here are ostensibly four older ladies who have all died from natural causes, everything from TB to gastric ulceritis, etc., but only after giving their inheritance to a sort of fringe religious group. You know when anyone dies of any sort of gastric ailment in a Christie that uh, there's more going on there than some tummy troubles. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I almost want to, if I was going to write like a Christie fanfic, I would title the story Tummy Trouble. You could combine all of them. It would be uh, Tomaine Poisoning <laughs> on a Boat. Yes. Tomaine Poisoning, yeah. Mal, mal de Mer. There's so many different directions in which to go in terms of tummy troubles in the Christie verse. Right. All right. Yeah, well, but it would be nice. It would be nice to just combine all of them into one. Absolutely. You know what, Catherine? Maybe we'll do just that. So the <laughs> there's really only one suspect in this story. Like many of the stories in The Labors of Hercules, this is not a traditional puzzle mystery. And that suspect is Dr. Anderson, who is the leader of this religious group. And, you know, the reason why he's a suspect should be pretty obvious if these older ladies who died from natural causes all happen to give their money to a fringe religious group. The head of said fringe religious group uh, deserves a closer look. And that is exactly what we are going to do. Right. In the course of the story. Right. So the world as it appears to be. Miss Carnaby. <gasps> Cumber, do you remember Miss Carnaby? Do I remember Miss Carnaby. I mean, one of my favorite characters from this entire collection. And clearly Christy knew what she, you know, had created there in the Nemean Lion because she makes a second appearance. It's so exciting. She does. And she shows um and it's delightful because she shows up ostensibly looking for some light employment from Poirot. <laughs> Which is such a funny, weird thing for her to do. And he kind of senses basically that something else is up here. And he continues to talk to her and it becomes clear that actually what she really wants is help on something that has been bothering her. Because her dear friend, Mrs. Emmeline Clegg, has a pretty healthy inheritance. And she's also become involved with a religious sect, like a splintering off of the Church of England called the Flock of the Shepherd. And it seems to be primarily older, um, either, you know, widows or spinsters uh, who are wealthy, who go on these spiritual retreats under the guidance of Dr. Anderson, who's a German, by the way. And, you know, Miss Carnaby 
in general, disapproves of fringe sex. So she's concerned about that, but she's mostly concerned because of uh, the fact that four of its members have recently died. Indeed. So Pro says that that is, in fact, very interesting. And perhaps Miss Amy Carnaby, criminal mastermind that she is, he's very, you know, charmingly complimentary to her in this opening. It really mm-hmm. does read, you know, as though he's sitting down with an old friend. And it's that whole notion whereby Poirot does have an appreciation for criminals who are creative and kind of ply their trade in unusual and distinctive ways. I would say they are usually criminals of the fairer sex, right? you know, and Miss Amy Carnaby, I think, definitely falls into that vaunted category within the novels and short stories that Christie has written. So just super, super charming opening to this. Again, you know, we talk about how well-written these stories are, and and this one Mm -hmm. opens uh, extremely promisingly. Does it hold up to that promise in the end? (laughs) Perhaps not. Uh It goes a little weird. How about that? It goes a little (laughs) sideways, but uh, we'll get there. So he says, you know, if Amy Harnaby is worried about her friend, then given how uh, talented she is and resourceful, well, why doesn't she just infiltrate this fringe sect? First, by arguing with her friend about it, and then allowing her friend to drag her to one of the retreats. So, you know, she would sort of approach her saying, I can't believe you're doing this. You know, let me take you out of this madness, and then allow herself to be kind of drawn in by Emmeline. And Amy Carnaby has a lot of courage, so she goes along with this. And uh, while she's doing that, Poirot goes to pay a visit to Scotland Yard and Inspector Jap. Inspector Jap. We get Inspector Jap in this story. <laughs> Such a delight. And Jap says that they have indeed looked into these suspicious cases of, you know, these four women dying and leaving their money to this group. But there doesn't appear to be any there there. They really all do seem to have died of natural causes. Dr. Anderson escaped from Germany to England after being kicked out of university when it was discovered that his mother was Jewish. Again, remember when Christie is writing here, it's very much during the Second World War. And the group doesn't seem to be doing anything untoward with its money either. It might be weird, but it doesn't really seem to be illegal. Nevertheless, something is fish. Something fishy is going on there because uh, when Miss Carnaby gets to the retreat, um, which is called the Full Growth of the Pasture, <laughs> it's basically a festival like it fell out of I don't know Coachella or the movie Midsummer. I, I definitely got Midsomar, Midsomar yeah. vibes. Um, I know. As well as, is it Esalen? The Esalen yes. retreat uh-huh. as yes. very famously or popularly depicted in the finale to Mad Men. The new day brings new hope. Lives we've led, the lives we've yet to lead. New day, new ideas. A new you. It very obviously put me in mind of the Nexium cult, which uh, I just think is probably (laughs) the cult that a lot of people might go to when they read the story just in the very much here and now, because there was a documentary that a lot of people have watched called The Vow. Yeah, all of those things are to say that there's basically an outdoor sort of like flower child ceremony, basically, with 
religious elements. We have no shortage of cults to reference when we're reading a story like this, sadly. No, there's so, so (laughs) many. I know, because what ends up happening is there's sort of like, there's a blindfolding and an offering of blood, Mm -hmm. after which the very cynical Miss Carnaby all of a sudden, after the ceremony, she feels just euphoric, like the entire world is suddenly a better place. It's brighter. Everything seems clearer and more distinct. And then she falls asleep. Right. So after this, per Poirot's instruction, Amy Carnaby tells Dr. Anderson that she has a large inheritance because she did mention at the beginning of the story that she had come into a small legacy. And Poirot mm-hmm. says, well, just exaggerate how much you actually received. People know that you received a legacy, so just make it seem like it's a lot bigger, more substantial than it actually is. She uh, also uh, tells Dr. Anderson that Mrs. Clegg, her friend, will soon be receiving an even greater inheritance, but she hasn't received that inheritance quite yet. This is what we would call an insurance policy, (laughs) since (laughs) uh, that means that Mrs. Clegg is more valuable to Dr. Anderson if he is killing off these women uh, alive for the foreseeable future rather than dead. She also tells Dr. Anderson that she happens to have a history of tuberculosis. It's just something that she's, you know, susceptible to. So just FYI, Doc. And she also meets a Mr. Cole at the retreat, who is a wild-eyed, crazy person. He just seems like a total religious fanatic. Obviously, this group attracts such characters. Uh, And she also comes into contact with a Mr. Lipscomb, who is the groundskeeper at the retreat. Right. So the next time one of these retreats comes up, Miss Carnaby meets up with Poirot in a tea shop, and he's basically explaining the next steps when all of a sudden, it really does seem, even as a reader, that Miss Carnaby has just become a sudden religious zealot herself. It's like one of those, you know, it's the act turn in a romantic comedy where the guy was paid to go out with the girl. And then he says, I started doing this for all the wrong reasons, but now I'm really in love with you. And it almost seems like Amy Carnaby might actually be buying into all of this nonsense. Right. And she like causes a giant scene in this tea shop and she tells Poirot off basically. And, you know, she storms out Um, She refuses to accept him paying for her tea, storms out of the shop, and Paro is a little bit like, uh, and he notices that there's another man in the shop, a large surly man also sitting in the tea shop. Right. So the same ceremony that we saw before, the one that led to Amy Carnaby feeling euphoric and then immediately falling asleep, hmm, not suspicious at all, uh, that ceremony (laughs) starts again. Uh, But right before the blood sacrifice can begin, uh, Scotland Yard rushes upon the scene, led by crazy Mr. Cole. In fact, who, of course, was not actually crazy. He was an undercover cop. He's really Inspector Cole. And Dr. Anderson is arrested. But hold on, Catherine. I mean, we how did he do this? We still don't really have a reasonable explanation for how or why he is guilty. But fortunately, we are in an Agatha Christie short story here. So we never from the beginning should have suspected that when Amy Carnaby felt that euphoria 
and then immediately fell asleep that that was any sort of religious inspiration or sort of divine supernatural right. force being acted upon her. We should, of course, also not have believed that Amy Carnaby was actually falling for this nonsense because, again, she's one of Christie's finest minor characters. That was an act. So, you know, our only clue here, and we're stretching by calling it a clue, but our only clue is that we simply don't trust these sorts of non-rational happenings in a Christie story. You know, we could reference two fantastic short stories we've already covered, The Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb. That Mm -hmm. would be one of our favorite Poirot short stories, as well as The Sign in the Sky, which is a really good mysterious mystery Quinn story. Without spoiling anything, we won't get more into that, but we have the same principle at work in those two stories and in so many Christie novels. Um, Right. Basically, if you feel a needle prick in your arm and start hallucinating, we should probably assume it's not a religious epiphany, but drugs. Exactly. So (laughs) tell us about a little bit about the world as it actually is, Catherine. Well, it's exactly what it seemed like, to be honest. Dr. Anderson is a charlatan and Scotland Yard, first of all, doesn't think that he's half Jewish, but that he's like a hardcore Aryan. And he seems to have been kicked out of the university in Germany, um, not for racial issues, but for being a multiple murderer, as he was an expert in bioweapons, particularly those made out of bacteria. So apparently he was too hot to handle even for Nazi Germany. For the Nazis. That seems a little much to me, but... It's a little much, although I'll point out that, you know, this is Christie using the fact that a character who we thought was Jewish is not actually Jewish as a point in his disfavor. So this isn't the throwaway anti-Semitism that we got in a lot of the pre-World War II novels. We unfortunately still get some of it in the post-World War II novels, believe it or not. But I think she was a little bit, at least, like a little bit more circumspect about that, or at least sensitive to the issue. This guy's just like a straight-up Nazi. Yeah, he's he's just a straight-up Nazi. And I think this is where you really can feel... I think Christie had a short memory about this kind of thing, unfortunately, and her kind of anti-Semitism took over again a little bit in the later 40s and the 50s and beyond. But during the war, I think it actually was really hard, it, it, hard if not impossible, to exhibit a lot of that casual anti-Semitism, given what everyone knew was going on, or, well, given what some people knew was going on at the time. So right. I think we can we could just feel that it's interesting to me that these are all, you know, steeped in the Second World War in interesting and in unusual ways. So, um, yeah, that's the deal with Dr. Anderson. And he fleed to England, set up shop as a brilliant, charismatic spiritualist who attracted widows and spinsters who had money. And then he talks to them and basically susses out their underlying health conditions so that he knows Mm -hmm. what could be an easy and convincing cover in terms of a natural death. Because what he does at these ceremonies is to drug them and then infect them. So he's drugging them with cannabis indica, which, you know, I think a lot of us, especially here in California and other places in the U.S. where it is now legalized, would just call weed that helps you sleep. But he uses that to kind of lull them. And then when they're in this vulnerable state, he then jabs them with a different needle that contains a long-acting form of whatever bacteria is going to 
aggravate their underlying condition and kill them. It might be, you know, a sort of gastric ulceritis condition. It could be tuberculosis. It could be pneumonia. It could be any number of things. So that's really terrible. And it's a really, really dastardly means of killing someone that I suppose is a bit of a parallel to the monstrous form of Jerrion in the Herculean tale. I have another thought about that, but long story short, Poirot tells Miss Carnaby to tell Anderson the TB because actually Miss Carnaby's never had TB. And so whatever he's using is essentially an agitator. It's not like a pure form of it Mm -hmm. because he's trying to use a long acting thing to aggravate an underlying condition. In other words, if she did get jabbed, the solution shouldn't kill her. And then also her religious conversion in the tea shop was because the surly man that Poirot also saw it was actually Lipscomb, the groundskeeper, who was an accomplice to Anderson. Right. The big baddie was Anderson, and then Mr. Cole seems like the minor baddie, but it in fact was Lipscomb, the groundskeeper. So see if you follow me on this. The closest that I could come to figuring out what the analogy here was with the actual myth, with the cattle of Jerrion, mm-hmm. Is that Miss Carnaby makes a big deal about how her father was a minister in the Church of England and how she doesn't like fringe sects. We find that out at the very beginning and she talks about it at length. Fringe sects. And, yes. Yes, sects. <laughs> I'm saying this, I'm deliberately saying the T. <laughs> and um, It's a much more interesting so, sentence without the T in it, but yes. Well, I mean, I bring, bring us back to Midsommar. But the thing that I thought about is in the Cattle of Jerion, it's a three-headed monster. And what Dr. Anderson is doing is corrupting, essentially, the teachings of the Church of England to these women. So, you know, what is a tenet of Christianity is the trinity right Mm -hmm. and so he is sort of making a monster of that idea of because they they do a chant about it in fact in during their ceremony too about essentially the spirit and the body etc like making a mockery of or this sort of monstrous version of the holy trinity yeah it's a corruption it's a monster it's a weird monster of what church teaching is yeah, I think that's fair. And I, I mean, I, I think there probably is something to be said for the fact that Christie specifically brings up the Trinity. I don't think it's referenced as the Trinity, but we do get a direct reference to that idea, like that very central concept within Christianity, right? And we and then we know right. that the flock of Jerrion is a three-headed monster or three like a three-bodied monster, right? So mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so I think that that's the most I think that's the most obvious to me connection to it. I like that. I fully subscribe to that. I think that I took it a little bit more generally in the same way that she drew a parallel between gossip and the Lurdean Hydra where you cut one head off and two grow in its place. Like the idea that, you know, it's, it's this sort of monstrous form that's ever multiplying in a way. The Jerrion is supposed to be just one of the most corrupted and filthy sort of monstrous creations 
in existence, right? And she's choosing in this short story just an extremely disturbing and indefensible and vitriolic right. kind of character well, in Doctor Anderson, right. who's it's all it's also mentioned is very handsome on the outside. I mean, he has he has this very charming, attractive exterior, but on the mm-hmm. inside, this is you know a picture of Dorian Gray territory. He's just a monster. I mean, he truly is a monster, and cults and this sort of thing are just so evil and so insidious on top of the serial killing that's happening here. Right. So, right. But I mean, but again, I mean, I think like cloaking yourself in the language of what to Miss Carnaby in particular is, you know, something that she highly values, which is like the Church of England, makes it extremely, extremely corrupt, right? And it's yeah. actually, that's actually interesting because I kind of think that leads us into our next story, actually. Don't touch that dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christie fans such as yourselves to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming So then, yeah, let's transition into the Apples of Hesperides. Could you tell us a little bit about this one, Catherine? Yeah, published um, in the U.S. in May of 1940 and this week under the title The Poison Cup, because as we apparently know, all these titles are much more literal in the U.S. version. Yes. And then in September of 1940 under its proper name in The Strand, and then, of course, in Labors of Hercules collection. All right. Shall I regale you with our final story? Please do. From Dolaire's Book of Greek Myths. The tear running down my cheek. For his 11th labor, Heracles was sent to find Hera's secret garden of the Hesperides and pick three golden apples from the little apple tree that Mother Earth had given Hera for her wedding gift. Nereus, the old gray man of the sea, was the only one on Earth who knew where the garden was, but he would not reveal the secret. When Heracles seized him to squeeze the secret out of him, Nereus tried to escape by changing himself into all kinds of animals. But Heracles held on to him, and at last Nereus had to tell him that the Garden of the Hesperides lay west of the setting sun, not far from where the titan Atlas stood, holding up the sky. On his way to the garden, Heracles heard the groans of the titan Prometheus, who was chained to the Caucasus Mountains. Heracles was in a hurry, but he felt sorry for the titan and took time off to tear apart his chains. Zeus, impressed by the strength of his son, let him do it. In gratitude, Prometheus warned Heracles not to pick the golden apples himself or he would die. They were apples of immortality and could be picked only by a god. Heracles traveled over land and over sea, and at last he came to the Garden of the Hesperides. Nearby stood the titan Atlas, and Heracles offered to hold up the sky for him if he would pick three golden apples from Hera's tree. Atlas said he would be glad to be rid of his heavy burden for a while, but he feared the dragon Ladon, which lay under the tree, watching it with all the eyes of his hundred heads. A hundred-headed dragon could not frighten Heracles. He drew his bow and shot it. Then he took the sky on his shoulders, and Atlas reached out and picked the apples. 
The three little nymphs who tended the tree wept bitter tears, but they could not stop Atlas now that the watchful dragon was dead. Heracles' knees started to buckle, so heavy was the weight of the sky, but Atlas stretched himself, enjoying his freedom. I might as well take these apples to Eurystheus myself, said the titan, and started to walk away. Heracles well understood that Atlas had no intention of ever coming back, but he pretended to agree. Very well, he said, just hold the sky while I make a pad of my lion skin. The sky is hard on my shoulders. This sounded reasonable to Atlas. He put down the golden apples and braced himself against the vault of the sky. Thank you for picking the apples, said Heracles and hurried homeward. On his way to Mycenae, Heracles was stopped by the giant wrestler Antaeus. He lived in a hut beside the road and forced all travelers to wrestle with him. He was a son of Mother Earth and could not die as long as he touched her, so he always won and had built his hut of the skulls and bones of his victims. When Heracles threw the giant to the ground, thinking he was dead, but saw him springing up revived, he understood what was happening. Seizing Antaeus, he held him in the air until he had squeezed all life out of him. Heracles hurried on to Mycenae and gave the golden apples to Eurystheus, but Eurystheus did not dare to keep them. He gave them to Athena, who took them back to Hera's garden, where they belonged. The end. Well, so... <laughs> Maybe a bit of a tenuous um, connection in this one, too. Let's let's just be upfront about that. <laughs> yeah, I would almost say a m- more tenuous connection, frankly, than the last one, but... Well, because there's, no, um, there's no thematic connection. In most of these, even if it's tenuous, such as in Flock of Jerry, and right, there's certainly some thematic resonance, and there's really none here, as we'll see. Yeah, well, okay, so we have a sort of a victim, uh, sort of. His name is Emery Power, and with a name like Emery Power, where do you think he's from, Oh, could he be from the good old U.S. of A? Might be. (laughs) Might just be. Um, And he's only the victim to the extent that he bought a piece of art a decade ago, and it's still missing. Right. And our suspects here are an international cat burglar ring. There were three within this ring who were suspected of having stolen this priceless work of art. And uh, we'll get into exactly what happened to all three of them and uh, where this artwork might be. But this is one of Christie's missing valuable objects <laughs> stories. There's no murder that happens here. There probably were a bunch of murders, actually, but there are no, no mur- murders in the story. <laughs> no murders in the story. I mean, it's a little bit of a shame to be ending on this one because I don't think that this is one of the strongest out of the collection, but still got something to say for itself. So let's get into the world as it appears to be. So Emery Power, who, as we mentioned, is an American, although he was born in Ireland, as so many Americans were. Uh, He is a fabulously rich businessman and well-known competitive art collector. And he comes to Poirot because he is in search of a decade-long lost purchase. That would be the Borgia Goblet, which was apparently once owned by Pope Alexander VI, who was a Borgia, and fabulously designed and adorned with only the finest of all jewels. It's said in the story that it was designed by Cellini. And Mm -hmm. this is actually one of the times where Robert Barnard... In his book, A Talent to Deceive, he's a very, very entertaining critic of Christie. He has a lot of appreciation for her, but he is not shy about poking fun at her when she does something wrong. And this is where he says, the mention of the goblet made by Cellini for Alexander VI is a good example of Christie's slapdash, almost amounting to Philistinism or contempt for her audience. And he says in parentheses about this goblet that it would have to have been made by Cellini before the age of three, because the issue 
issue is that Pope Alexander VI died in 1503 and Cellini was born in 1500. So she just used the wrong name for the artist or the wrong name for the Pope. Like she just kind of didn't do her research when she was reeling off those two names and it doesn't really make any sense. And apparently it irked Robert Barnard. So there you go. Fair enough. I feel that sometimes when I read something and I'm like, well, that's incongruous. Right. And we know that sometimes Christy played a little fast and loose with those sorts of details. I actually think it's part of her charm now that, you know, we're as steeped in Christy as we are because she can do no wrong. Yeah. So this Borgia goblet supposedly uh, designed by Cellini, you know, when he was like two and a half. Three. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's said to, you know, be adorned by the finest jewel of jewels. And supposedly when the Pope gave it to one of his dining companions to drink from, they would soon keel over. Such was the goblet's power. So again, it seems like maybe it had some sort of supernatural power to it. I mean, we know that the Borgias were famous poisoners. So uh, perhaps there's more going on here than meets the eye with the cup itself. Emery Power had purchased it um, in 1929 from its owner, who was the Marchese de San Veratrino. But before he could even like pick up his purchase in Italy, uh, it was stolen in the night by a well-known European heist gang of these three men who were mentioned before. Two were caught, um, and the third, Patrick Casey, fell from another cat burglary attempt, this one on his own, and died. Yeah, it said that like he got old, so his muscles got stiff, and he just yeah. fell from a no, great and height. He was trying to. He was like, yeah, he was trying to like come in through like an eighth floor window or something from the roof, and just yeah, fell. <laughs> Despite what to catch a thief taught us about um, an older Cary Grant's cat burglary attempts. You, you know, um, th- maybe that's why I felt indignant when I read that line, because I was like, that doesn't seem right. I think you could still do some cat burglaring into your the autumn of, of one's years, and maybe it was just Cary Grant who I had in the back of my mind. <laughs> I mean, that was um, that was 100% who I had in the back of my mind. Or um, what was that? Sean Connery and an Entrapment? Sean Connery and Chapman or um, the Pierce Brosnan uh, Thomas Thomas Crown Crown Affair Affair. yeah with Rene Russo (laughs) never forget that fantastic performance by Rene Russo in that movie I actually saw it recently and boy does it hold up I'm a little fuzzy about who you are oh I'm sorry I'm Catherine Banning of Zurich Underwriters requested well actually they your insurance let's say there are a couple of Swiss gentlemen who'd rather not write a hundred million dollar check Tom stuck with you on my back Oh, come on, Lieutenant. Who knows? You might enjoy it. Maybe that will be like my holiday gift to myself is just watching all of three of those because I think all three of those have something to recommend them. Yeah, it's funny. I actually also watched To Catch a Thief not too long ago, and it is charming. I mean, how could you not be charming to just look at Cary Grant and Grace Kelly? The story didn't hold up as much as I thought it was going to. I found it to be a little slow, but... Super sort of getting to like uh, Silver Fox, Gary Grant. Ooh, with those like yeah. those crow's feet around the eyes. So good. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho. Well, chef's kiss. Yeah, totally. <laughs> anyway, Poirot, you know, he's found out all this stuff about the cat burglars. And so Power had thought previously that maybe his uh, business rival, Sir Reuben Rosenthal, um, who is also a famous art collector, 
had arranged to have it. Not that he arranged the burglary, but that somewhere behind the scenes he's had it. But now after all these years, they're suddenly business associates and they've become buddies now. They've put their longstanding rivalry aside and he no longer thinks that. And so as a result, he's finally come to Poirot, even though this is now a cold case, um, because both he and Rosenthal, in fact, want to know what happened to the goblet. We should note, by the way, because it it is noted at the beginning of the story, and this is part of why Poirot is so intrigued and takes on the case, that the specific design of this goblet involves a tree round which a jeweled serpent is coiled, and the apples on the tree are formed of very beautiful emeralds. And Christie writes, Poirot murmured with an apparent quickening of interest, apples? (laughs) So that's kind of the only point of connection to the apples of Hesperides? Maybe not, but we, we, we'll we talk about that more when we get to the Right, end, I mean, because it, it's, it's, it's the tree from the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, that's yeah. the... I suppose in that the apples are coming from a Garden of Eden-esque place, there are religious overtones to the Herculean labor itself, as classically told, and we're certainly going to go in that direction with this story as well. Right, but, which is why I actually think it, weirdly enough, relates to the last story. Mm, but, yeah, 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 I can say, all right, well, let's not spoil things, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Inspector Wagstaff had been the investigator on this case, and he gives Poirot the rundown. And what was that rundown, Kemper? So there's no sign of this Cellini goblet, and there hasn't been in uh, you know all of the ten years since it was stolen. It just seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth. And the police's best guess is that someone has it, but they obviously haven't put it on display. They haven't tried to sell it, which is particularly odd because that is usually why things are stolen for their monetary value. Uh, not always, though. It wasn't in the belongings of any of the criminals, nor was it secretly under the floorboards in Casey's house. No one. And they checked. <laughs> they checked. They definitely checked under the floorboards. No one has any family. The other two uh, burglars who were caught, you know, have no family. Casey, in fact, is the only one who does have a family. And he has a daughter who became a nun and then a son who went to America and uh, went to jail and who is currently in prison. When that's conveyed to Poirot, he is taking notes and he writes mm-hmm. down America. We might be coming back to that when we get to some clues. What happens next, Catherine? So several months later, I think it's three, Poirot uh, goes to the West Country of Ireland. There's a really kind of odd sequence. Basically, he's just staring into the ocean. It's sort of oddly, I think, for Christy, a bit rhapsodic about Ireland and the sea. Yeah, it it's seems almost, a little bit unusual. It's almost like we're hearkening back to the man and the man in the sea, and even all of those ponderous sequences in which Poirot would be staring out at the Nile in Death on the Nile. Um, right, we've seen it in Christie before, but it is it it is a little awkwardly inserted into the story. I agree with that. We should note that he's waited this long because instead of traveling all these places himself, he like made some phone calls to other private detectives in other countries. But he does go to Ireland. And so he, after this long sequence of looking into the ocean, he goes to the convent of St. Mary and All Angels in Inishgallen. And he uses his best childhood Catholic behavior to ask to speak with the Mother Superior. 
And he sits down with that mother superior, and he politely asks if she has a sister at the convent who was once known as Kate Casey. And, you know, we do know where this is going. There was a daughter mentioned who had become a nun. And the mother superior says, yes, Kate Casey became Sister Mary Ursula. And Poirot explains why he's there and why it's important that he speak to her. And the mother superior tells him, I'm sorry, that is not possible because she died the month before, just a month before. Yeah. Seems like he just missed his opportunity. Right. Just missed his opportunity. And so a despondent Poirot ends up eating at the pub at the inn he's staying in. And it's drafty. And guess what, Kemper? The food upsets his stomach. What? (laughs) (laughs) And so while he's angrily kind of staring at the food, a drunken gambler sits down next to him and rambles on and then somehow mentions that his name is Atlas. Hmm. And Poirot takes that as a sign. And Poirot's like, uh-huh, Atlas, you say. And they walk for miles. Poirot in his hardest shoes. I liked the note that George had suggested he bring a pair of brogues because it might be better for walking, but he refuses. <laughs> so um, Poirot is very uh, sore feet and they have walked to the convent and the uh, drunken gambler, Atlas, uh, lifts Poirot over the convent wall to break in, again, let me reiterate, to a convent. And then he waits for Poirot to come back. And um, when he does, Poirot has something under his arm, but he gives Atlas two five-pound notes. And Atlas decides to bet it all on a horse named Hercules, who we are told wins the next day at 60 to 1 odds. Well, look at that. It's actually really funny when Atlas puts him on his shoulders, because this is also Poirot being pretty active, you know, fairly late in the canon as well. I mean, this mm-hmm. is like 1940. And um, right. Christy writes, they had come to the wall of the convent. Atlas prepared to do his part. A groan burst from him, and he exclaimed in low, poignant tones that he was destroyed entirely. Ercu Poirot spoke with authority. Be quiet. It is not the weight of the world that you have to support. Only the weight of Hercule Poirot. <laughs> Very amusing. (laughs) All right. So before we get into the world as it actually is, we have two clues, technically. I mean, the first is that, you know, I mentioned that there's a bit of deflection that almost seems to happen when those two children of Patrick Casey's are mentioned. We're supposed to focus on the son who's in jail. Poro writes down America. It seems suspicious that he's in prison. But of course, as astute readers, we should realize that that means we should actually focus on the daughter. And we know that the daughter is a nun, which leads to our second clue, which is that in Christie, references to nuns and Catholicism in general are often key. Fast forward this if you haven't read either After the Funeral or Lord Edgware Dies, but there are some nuns in After the Funeral that are tangential, but not entirely irrelevant to the solving of that mystery. And uh, Catholicism is extremely central to the solving of the mystery in Lord Edgware Dies. So perhaps we have something similar going on here. Right. And also, let us not forget this story starts out with a reference to a goblet or a chalice, as one might say, that belonged to a pope. pope. Mm. So probably if you start the story with the mention of a chalice and a pope and a nun comes up somewhere in the middle of it, that's probably going to play out. So the world as it actually is, 
Poirot meets with power and he hands him the goblet because, you know, that breaking and entering, he, he got the goblet and he tells power the story. And as he does it, he also pushes into the snake's mouth on the goblet and that reveals like a little small slide on the inside of the handle through which the Borgia Pope could uh, leak in poison. In other words, it's not that the goblet was magical. It's that it was a murdering goblet. Lovely. Yeah, <laughs> lovely. Like a lovely objet to have is this like item used to, to kill a bunch of people. Her late mother was a devout Catholic and she felt morally terrible about her father's business and his criminality. When she finally goes to the convent, she takes the goblet as some kind of penance, I think. And they actually used it in their services. By the way, it's impossible for me not to picture when Poirot is going in and looking for this goblet, the final scene in Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. Last Crusade. Crusade. I'm not a historian. I have no idea what it looks like. Which one is it? Yeah. the only thing that I could think of the entire time. Yeah. I think probably any American. I don't know how much global reach the Indiana Jones movies have. I, I think a fair amount, actually. So maybe maybe even beyond the States. But I think for any Americans, it's just really hard to hear the word goblet placed in any sort of an adventure-ish <laughs> story <laughs> and not think of, and just not immediately get to go to. He chose poorly. He chose poorly, and then. You have chosen wisely. You're totally right. That was the only thing that I could also think of was the final scene in Last Crusade. Because, of course, and that's the joke a little bit in this, too, right, is that the actual Holy Grail is the simplest one. That's why Indiana Jones gets it right, you know? Right. Yes. It's the the one without pretensions. Right. The Nazi essentially picks the Borgia Goblet. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, So now, you know, Emery Power has his goblet back. And when Power says, okay, well, name your price. You've you've done what I asked and I'll essentially give you anything. Poirot says he doesn't want any money. He actually wants just one thing from Mr. Power. And that is that he give the goblet back to the convent. For that service, he guarantees Power that the sisters are going to pray for him at mass. And here is the second error, and a much more damning one, actually, uh, that Christie makes in this story. And this one was pointed out by John Curran, in fact, because the way that it's worded in the story, what Poirot was saying, he says, quote, the nuns will say masses for your soul, but nuns can't actually say mass, first of all. Right. And second of all, a mass for the soul is actually only celebrated after a person's death. You only sort of have a mass for one soul after they're no longer on this earth. So that's just wrong on two counts. And uh, John Curran was there to point it out. So uh, appreciate him. 
as we always do. And it seems like maybe this was one of the more hurriedly written <laughs> short stories among the collection. I don't know, perhaps. In any case, that's what Poirot says, even though he would have and should have known better as a Catholic himself. And Power finally agrees, since it seems like bettering his soul would be a better reward than this murder goblet. Uh, itself. And he also, for power, what's important is that he wanted to know what happened to it. He felt like it had been stolen away from him right after he had Mm -hmm. won it at auction. And now he has it. And if he's giving it back, that is something that is within his control. He is choosing to give it back. So he still has the ultimate authority here. Also, that goes a little bit back to the um, actual myth, right? Is giving the golden apples back to Hera. Yes. That's true. Very, very true. Yeah, that's true. I like that. There's sort of a, a an almost narrative resonance there, if not a thematic mm-hmm. one, at least a narrative resonance. No, I mean, and obviously with Atlas, you know, going on Atlas's back, I mean, Atlas figures prominently in this labor. So it makes sense that she would have a character named Atlas. And she's right. obviously winking at us as she does that. So yeah, Poirot goes back to the convent and he explains the entire situation to the mother superior. He asks for those prayers. So the mother Superior says, tell him we thank him and we will pray for him. And Poirot says gently, he needs your prayers. And the Mother Superior says, is he then an unhappy man? And here's Poirot's answer. So unhappy that he has forgotten what happiness means. So unhappy that he does not know he is unhappy. The nun said softly, ah, a rich man. Hercule Poirot (laughs) said nothing, for he knew there was nothing to say. And that's how the story ends. <laughs> I will say this. I mean, we talk about Christie, the capitalist, Christie, the sort of mercenary soul. But this is a rare instance where she is definitely pitching herself in the other direction, which she does do from time to time. This put me in mind of The Call of Wings, that very early short story yeah. mm-hmm. that she wrote in the Hound of Death collection. It's a good reminder that sometimes our capital C conservative capitalist Christie had, you know, some leanings in the other direction. Well, I mean, I think that it sort of goes in the call of wings too, but they're basically at the end of the day kind of religious stories. Yes. And so that's actually 100% impacting that. Power's entire hunt for the goblet is because he wanted to possess it. It doesn't have any other intrinsic value, whereas to the nuns, and it's what Poirot ends up saying to power, is that the nuns were actually using it. Right. There's no place for crass commercialism in any of these Christie stories where religion plays a prominent role. Right. I think that that is incredibly consistent. And I think you're actually right that, you know, not only is there a narrative resonance with the original labor, but you could even argue a thematic resonance because there is this whole notion that Hercules is forced to steal the apples of Hesperides from this garden. And at the end of the story, they're kind of restored because in a way they're, they're almost like the original MacGuffin. Like they don't really matter. What matters is that he's being, you know, he's being tasked to do it and he does it, but the transaction itself is very much beside the point and unimportant. And those who would focus on that are those who would ultimately lose. And she is making the same point here in her version of the story. Right. 
both of them have more resonance than I think might initially seem to be the case. Yeah, I agree. You know what? After this conversation, I don't think I was giving her enough credit. So uh, it's it's really impressive. We've talked about this ad nauseum at this point as we've gone through all the stories in this collection, but it is truly impressive how she managed to put, you know, a light modern spin on all of these labors and create a collection that really hangs together as a whole in a way that, let's be honest, a lot of her collections don't. I would argue The Mysterious Mr. Quinn very much does. That's another one where the sum is kind of greater than its parts, the parts themselves also being in many cases fantastic. But that's also the case here. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Catherine, 2020 is almost over. We've almost made it out. Kemper, what I'll remember are the friends we made along the way. Were you seeing a lot of friends this year? Well, Kemper, you know, there's a there's a lady in my hallway mirror who I talk to sometimes. I mean, I'll say that girl could probably use an upgrade out of leggings and I think she wears some giant socks. You know, maybe she should shave her legs. Like, there, there are some ideas I have for her, but I mostly meant our friends from Best Fiends. Ah, uh, yes. Howie the Lizard and Company. A bright spot in a difficult year. Of course. And did you know that the whole gang is decked out in holly jolly holiday wear right now including the villainous slugs even they can join in the fun with some snow and some mistletoe and a little cup of cheer well we could certainly all use a cup of cheer so engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters trust me with over 100 million downloads this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must play Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. And I think that actually is a good segue into just discussing something we haven't discussed yet, even though we've now gone through all these different labors, and that would be the adaptation of the collection, because we only have one adaptation of the labors of Hercules, and that, of course, is coming from the David Suchet series. These labors were never adapted individually, and we've talked a lot about what a shame that is, but they were adapted collectively more or less. And what's interesting is we, if for anyone who has listened to our recent interview with Mark Aldrich, you're already going to know this, but it just so happens that while we were covering Mark's new book, Hercule Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World, he had some new information in there about how the David Suchet series came into being. And shockingly, it actually first came into being um, with this idea on the part of Brian Eastman, who was a producer for the series, wanting to do a lavish adaptation of Christie's Labors of Hercules, doing them one by one in this kind of roving, lavishly produced series that would take place in many different parts of Europe. Because as we know, I mean, Poirot is in Switzerland for a lot of them. You know, he goes to Ireland in this one. I think this might be the only time that we actually see Poirot 
physically in Ireland, uh, in the canon. So there's just a lot of travel and there's definitely an opportunity to make a lot out of these individual stories. And they obviously ultimately decided not to do it that way and went in a different direction. But that was the seed that would turn into the Suchet series, which is why it's so ironic that they left the Labors of Hercules collection to the final season because this one aired in series slash season 13. This is the penultimate episode. It's actually the one that aired just before Curtain. So we're at the very, very end here. And they definitely did not adapt each of them individually. They did a bit of a mishmash here. And this is an episode that has the most invention in terms of a departure from Christie of any of the adaptations. And I'll actually make just a brief reference to another interview episode we did recently, and that would be with Anthony Horowitz, because he you know, shared with us that rule that they had when adapting for the Suchet series, which was you can do whatever invention you want, but do don't change the means of the murder and don't change the murderer. And they really held fast to that rule, except for this adaptation, because we have a lot of different stuff going on here. Well, and also, I mean, we just covered two stories that basically don't show up in it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit and we're not going to go through the entire plot of the adaptation. I actually, you know, recommend it for anyone, especially if you've recently read The Labors of Hercules with us. I had certainly seen this adaptation before and I did not have good thoughts about it. I still have a very mixed reaction to it, but I had a lot more appreciation for it having just read the labors of Hercules. Yeah. And for I what think they it did. does some I think it does some interesting things with what it's trying to adapt. I don't know that I agree with all of them, but I think it's really watchable, frankly. Yeah, it's very watchable. It's written by Guy Andrews. Mark, actually, our friend Mark Aldridge, identifies him as having written some of the weakest Poirot episodes. I honestly don't know what other episodes he wrote. I'm sure he wrote a number of them. But I didn't have a big problem with either the writing or the directions directed by Andy Wilson. And at this point, obviously, the series was so uh, self-assured and knew what it was doing to the point where even though it was doing a lot of invention and departing a lot from the text, they were able to create a recognizable episode of Agatha Christie-ish mystery. And it certainly does feel like that, even though it's departing so much from the text. So essentially what they did is that they took four out of the 12 labors and kind of stitched them together as much as they could. By far, the labor that they adapted the most thoroughly is the Aramanthian boar. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's the one where Poirot is stranded up in a hotel in the Swiss Alps. And there's this psychopathic killer named Marasco who's stalking them. That is absolutely what frames this whole episode. We have all of those elements going on. But then very cleverly, the Stymphalian birds is another of the stories that takes place in a hotel. That's where we had the story right. of the two older Polish ladies who seemed like birds of prey. And then it turned out, obviously, we're just going to be spoiled all these stories in here as we're talking about the adaptation. But it turned out that, you know, it was these two English ladies who were the true birds of prey who had designs upon this innocent Englishman who was staying in the hotel. So it's very easy to put those two together since they both were taking place in a hotel. And then we had a third story that also took place partially in Switzerland, which was the Arcadian deer. And that's the one involving, you know, a ballerina and her maid. And this, in the original, it was a mechanic 
mechanic here. It's a chauffeur who fell in love with, you know, what he believes is the ballerina's maid, but it turns out to actually have been the ballerina masquerading as her maid. So she's staying in this hotel and seems to be very sick, which is, you know, pretty close to what was going on in the Arcadian Deer. And then the fourth story that we have a lot of pieces of is the capture of Cerberus, actually. And that would be the version of the capture of Cerberus that was published, which involves Poirot meeting up again with Countess Rosikoff. And Countess Rosikoff is very much a character in this adaptation. And we also have the character in the original, her name was Alice, and and her name is Alice here. As Christy wrote it, she was her soon-to-be daughter-in-law. She was actually engaged to her son. Countess Rosikoff did have a, a son, you know, who had been alluded to as far back as the big four. So he's grown up at this point. And Alice is, uh, this kind of dowdy scientist who's going to marry him soon. And she ends up being the culprit in that story. And it's not nearly as devastating to Countess Rosikoff because it just means that her son isn't going to marry her anymore. But Countess Rosikoff had no idea of what was going on in that story. And we do have a similar dynamic here. And ultimately, Alice ends up being the murderer. And that's where, you know, this adaptation departs because there is a different ending to the Aramanthian boar in terms of who Mariscode is. And they have right. a fake out ending where the waiter who in the original text is Mariscode, it seems like he is here again, but that turns out not to be the case. And Alice actually is Mariscode. So I understand why they departed because they were trying to do a sort of conglomeration of a whole bunch of different stories. And you know, I, I guess I would say it's more or less successful, but it's still a shame that they couldn't figure out a way to do each of these stories individually. Yeah. I mean, I like for what they're doing with it, again, I, I think it's very watchable and I kind of can appreciate what's being done with it, frankly. If you're not going to do them one by one, they're going to be incredibly hard to stitch together. And, you know, so yeah, they picked all of the hotel ones, basically. And the Countess Rosikoff one, because they couldn't not include Countess Rosikoff, which I think is fair. Yeah, I think that that's definitely fair. I mean, are some of the characters like a wee bit underdeveloped? And is it a little bit hard at times to quite know what's going on, even if you know what all the stories are? The answer... There would be yes, but as is the case with a lot of the late period of the Suchet ones, it's beautifully shot. Everything looks really like luxe, I think. No, yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, like, I mean, on the kind of cardboardiness of the characters, to use a, yeah. a loaded phrase when talking about Christy, but I think one of the worst examples of that is Dr. Lutz, or Lutz, who um, yeah. does feature in the original Aramanthian Boar. He's here, and he's played by Simon Callow. And Simon and Calvo yes. is such a fantastic actor. It's so exciting to see him on screen, and he is criminally underused in this adaptation. It's it's kind of sad. No, so but, he gets um, a little but, lost. Eleanor, but Eleanor Tomlinson is playing Alice, mm-hmm. and she's very well used in it. Her cheekbones are doing a lot of uh, heavy lifting. They are. It's true. When she's kind of unmasked as the psychopathic serial killer, Marisco, she's convincing. Right. I, I think that's true. And, you know, we do have a different actor playing Vera Rosikoff from the actress who played her in that earlier episode, The Double Clue, which we talked about in our Vera Rosikoff themed episode, which is why we already covered the capture of Cerberus. But I think she does a good job here as well. And 
and it's yeah i mean there's there's a fair amount of fun being had also which was in short order in the later seasons of poirot so i also appreciate that actually in this episode that we get some flashes of humor and lightness even though it is an extremely dark and violent adaptation i mean the uh, the opening involves you know this innocent woman whose last name is le Mesurer or le Mesurier, if you're pronouncing it in more of the francophone way okay. um and that's their kind of allusion to the le Mesurier inheritance which is the other short story that they didn't cover so they kind of threw that in there as well by way of a character name but she's just brutally and violently disemboweled we don't see yeah. her actual body but we're told that she's disemboweled oh, you see well, we- we see the blood splatter. You see, it's like a Dexter blood. It's a Dexter level yeah. blood splatter. And then like, yeah. we're literally told that she was turned inside out, which for a yeah. Poirot within the Suchet series is a bit much. So I, I think you can feel a little bit of the discomfort of like, ah, we don't quite know what we're doing here. We kind of just have to get our way through this odd mishmash that we're doing here. It, you know, it, it's not, not every moment of it sings, but it's not a total disaster. No, I think it's worth watching. Yeah. I'm sad to say, I I think that ends our uh, adventuring through the labors of Hercules. I know. It was, you know, enjoyable, all these episodes that it lasted. Yeah, I mean, it's been quite a long journey through the labors of Hercules. We've certainly given each of the labors their due, but I think that that is warranted because this is definitely one of the best collections that Christie did. I'm not prepared to say that it is the best. I know John Curran thinks it's her best collection. Robert Barnard was extremely complimentary of it. I think Mysterious Mr. Quinn is a real contender there. And we're also not done covering all of her short stories. So I'm not ready to make a final pronouncement on that. But I have to say, I really, really, really enjoyed these. Yeah, me as well. All right. Well, we will be releasing a new episode in one week's time, just in time for Christmas. So happy holidays to everyone out there during this holiday period. If you aren't celebrating any holiday in particular, happy end of 2020, because like us, you are probably not too sad to see the end of this year. But for that episode coming out in one week's time, we are so excited to be sharing with you, at long last, our Stuck in Its Time-themed episode. A few months back, we asked you, our listeners, to submit some thoughts, musings, ponderings on the whole issue of reading and reacting to Christy, particularly vis-a-vis the stuck-in-his-time elements that we grapple with, particularly when we're ranking the novels. And we were so thrilled to get such a robust response, both as to the number of responses and the thoughtfulness of those responses. Just a truly impressive showing from you all. So thank you for that. And we can't wait to share those responses with you. And it felt appropriate to do that around the holidays. So that is our Christie for Christmas that we'll be putting on offer for you. And then in the episode after that, we will at long last be covering a novel. It's been a long time. That's right, folks. We are ready for Cat Among the Pigeons. Poirot's going to school, y'all. He's going to a boarding school. I can't wait. I actually really enjoy Cat Among the Pigeons. I'm very excited for this one. 
I think that we're both looking forward to it. And so obviously uh, pick up a copy if you want to read along with us, ideally at your local bookseller. It's like Poirot goes to the facts of life. You take the good, you take the bad, you take them both and there you have the facts of life. The facts of life. Who wouldn't love that mashup? Speaking of mashups, uh, right? I'm I, now, now maybe you've turned me off a little bit. Thanks, Kemper. <laughs> so I guess, I guess to all you listeners who might have been looking forward to this episode coming up, you know, I guess lower your expectations. I think there's a lot of affection for this Poirot. Actually, it's a little goofy, but I'm very excited to go along for the ride with you, Catherine, and with all of you. In the meantime, you can always contact us. We'd love to see you over on our Patreon site. Uh, we actually just covered our second Mary Westmacott novel, and we did so in conversation with Sophie Hanna, which was just an unmitigated delight. We covered The Rose and the Yew Tree with her, and such a fascinating book of Christie's as well, uh, which she wrote under her Mary Westmacott pseudonym. So if you would like to check that out, you can go over to www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Catherine is on Twitter at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha, and our Instagram handle is at allaboutagatha. And we would really appreciate it if you would uh, take time and give us a rating or a review. So many of you have done so but we could always use more and we'll see you next time thanks so much bye bye